0: Seated. And we're going to continue in our worship through the preaching of God's word. And so I want to read for us two passages this morning. The first is found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. And the second will be in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 6. And so if you have your Bibles, you can get, get them out and turn to Galatians chapter 5, first. It'll also be on the screens and on the UVersion Bible app as well. Galatians 5, starting in verse 22, it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Our second passage is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-6, through 6, and it says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer in grief in all kinds of trials. If you will, bow to me in prayer. Father, we thank you that in you we do have a living hope. Lord, that we face all kinds of trials and grief and pain in this life, but we, we hold tightly to the hope that we have in you. And in that hope, in you, the living God, we are able to rejoice. So Lord, please be with Pastor Kevin as he faithfully preaches your word. Lord, give him clarity. And Lord, for us, Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that are receptive to your word, that your Holy Spirit would use your word to shape us and conform us to the image of Jesus, and that we would leave here abounding in joy. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Ryan, and thank you for that time of worship. Uh, If you happen to be in our overflow room this morning, or if you're watching by video or online, uh, listening by podcast, uh, I want to take a moment to welcome you as well. Uh, This is our third week in our series that is a nine-week series on what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, That was the phrase that you heard Ryan read earlier. And today we are covering the second trait in that list. That trait is joy. A result of the Holy Spirit working in our lives is that we both possess and express joy. In fact, let me put it this way, and this is going to be on the screen so you can see this clearly. Joy is both a privilege to be experienced and a responsibility to exhibit. It is a a privilege to be experienced and a responsibility to exhibit. In other words, the Christian not only has a reason to be joyful, but that Christian should be joyful as well. Okay, let me give you a few verses to support this. The first one comes from John 10.10. This is from the lips of Jesus. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus said, did not come just so that you might have salvation, but I came so that you could have full, joyful life now. Here's another verse, Romans 14.17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So again, it's clear. The kingdom of God, having a relationship with Christ, is about experiencing joy. And then 1 Thessalonians, we read these commands. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we are commanded, it is God's will, to rejoice. This idea is then repeated in Philippians chapter 4. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. So here's the command, have joy, rejoice. And in case you missed it, Paul repeats it and then puts an exclamation point at the end. You are to rejoice. I am to rejoice. Now, here's my question for you. How many of you are feeling a little guilty right now? Please, someone say yes and join me. Yes, I read these passages and I feel guilty. I am commanded to be joyful. But I'm not always joyful. We are told that we are to be a people of joy, yet I do not always feel joyful. It's hard at times to live out these commands. I remember about six or seven years ago going to my family doctor for my annual physical. The previous year had been very challenging for me, medically speaking. Several months before that appointment, uh, my dermatologist had discovered that I had melanoma and it was right on my nose, which meant that he had to slice off the end of my nose, which then led to the plastic surgeon having to rebuild my nose, which was a much bigger ordeal than the original surgery to take off the cancer. Then on the heels of that, a blood test determined that I was anemic. And so that then led to all kinds of tests to figure out why I was anemic. And after all of this poking and prodding, they finally figured out that I have celiac disease, which did explain why I would feel like I had the flu every time I would eat a biscuit. After all of that, I had this annual physical and I sat down with my doctor And I began to explain all those things that had happened in the previous months. And he sat there on the stool with his laptop on the counter, just typing away, updating all of the medical history. And I finally finished, and he kept typing and kept typing. And then he stopped, and he looked over his laptop at me, and he let out this big sigh. And he said, well... Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? (laughs) Sometimes life is like that, right? I mean, I could sit down with some of you in here right now, and you could begin to go through a list of all the challenges that you're facing. And maybe it's just a season, or maybe it's been that way for a while. It could be a health issue. Or maybe it's a financial issue, and it is a real struggle that every day weighs you down. A relationship issue, a marriage that's in trouble, and every day you are faced with this reality. And you could get to the end of telling me everything that's going on in your life right now, and I might very well say, well, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? I would acknowledge what you're facing is tough. It's not easy at all. And yet, if you are a follower of Christ, we are supposed to experience joy and display joy, even in difficult circumstances. How do we do that? Let me just first of all acknowledge it's not easy. And I am certainly no expert in this. However, this morning what I want to do is to look at what the Bible says is a pathway to joy. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of situations that are less than ideal, the Bible says that you and I are to fight for joy. That there are things that we can do to experience joy regardless of what is happening in our lives. So if you've got your message map with you, you can see these uh, notes on there. Uh, The first that we will look at are two common stumbling blocks to joy. The first one is, and you can fill this in, the first stumbling block to joy is sin. Simply put, our sin will steal our joy. Now this Passage that we're going to read comes from a story in the life of King David after his sin of an extramarital affair with a lady named Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband. He was then confronted over his multiple sins and he repented of his sins and then that prayer of repentance is recorded in Psalm 51. And in part of that prayer, David prayed this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. After David's sin, you notice what happened? He lost his joy. And he's very specific here. He lost the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of his relationship with God. And so he prayed and said, God, restore this joy. Now let me be clear, our sin never breaks our relationship with God. Your sin cannot steal your salvation. It steals the joy of your salvation. It cannot disqualify you from heaven. What it does, though, is it steals the joy that we experience in our relationship with God. It cuts off the faucet of joy that we get from Him. So when we sin, best thing to do is like David. We confess, and we repent, and we ask God to restore that joy that comes from our salvation. The second very common stumbling block, you can see that there, is misplaced hope. So the first one is sin. Sin cuts off our joy in the Lord. But the second thing is misplaced hope. And I want to note one very short verse from Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi. In that letter, he wrote, My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, here is why I note this particular verse. Paul wrote these very words from prison. Imprisoned in Rome in circumstances that were certainly less than ideal. And at this point, not only was he in prison, but Paul faced a number of physical ailments. In fact, several years prior to this letter being written, Paul was in a certain city where he so angered those who were against him preaching Christ that they took him and they attempted to stone him to death threw rocks at him until they thought they had killed him. They even took his body, his unconscious body, and they took that body outside of the city and they left him for dead. Now, if someone throws rocks at you enough that they believe you are dead, that's bad. You've been injured. You've been hurt badly. And it's not something you will recover from quickly. Paul not only experienced that, he experienced multiple beatings. If you're a note taker, write down 2 Corinthians 11. You can go and read this chapter later. In that chapter, Paul gives what is commonly called his resume of suffering. And he lists all the things that he went through in his, in his mission to proclaim the gospel. And in that, he lists eight times that he suffered beatings. Three times were from the hands of the Romans, five from the hands of the Jews. They were severe and left permanent, painful uh, damage to his body. Meaning, when you get to the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you very much want to look at Paul and say, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, How was the play? It was awful. In fact, you turn over one chapter to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and Paul writes about his thorn in the flesh. There have been all kinds of guesses as to exactly what this thorn in the flesh was. We know it was awful. Paul prayed, in fact, God, please take away this thorn in the flesh. And some have guessed that maybe he had a stutter, And he asked God to take away the stutter so he could more clearly proclaim the gospel. Some have guessed that he had some kind of eye condition. And he he could not see very well. And he prayed, Lord, take away this, this eye condition so that I can see. I think it had to have been some kind of physical issue with his body aching from those beatings that he had taken. I mean, you just do not recover from those kinds of beatings in a way where you wake up every day feeling like a million bucks. I'm sure Paul woke up every morning hurting, bad. And this was before a leave and Advil had been invented. He ate every single day. And yet Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi, and he says, rejoice. Have joy. It is amazing that he was able to write this. He wasn't doing well financially. He had lost his freedom. He was in prison. He was suffering physically, and yet Paul was able to say to the Philippians, in the midst of all of this, I still have joy. Why? It's because the foundation of Paul's joy was not based in his circumstances. When we place our hope in the things of this world, that becomes a stumbling block to us experiencing joy. When our circumstances are less than ideal, when we do not get what we want, when life is not going our way, then our joy will be stolen if we have placed our hope in the things of this world. So those are two stumbling blocks to joy. Now let's look at stepping stones to joy. So you can see the first one there on your message map. The first stepping stone is acknowledge my own inability to create joy. Acknowledge that I cannot be the creator of my own joy. Notice what Paul wrote in Romans 15. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now notice what Paul did not write in this chapter. May you fill yourself with joy. Paul did not write, you need to produce more joy in your life. Paul did not write, go and take a class on how to be happy. Go and read a book on the secret of your own happiness and then live that out. Paul did not write any of those things. Paul said, may the Lord produce this in your life. Just as with all the fruits. Sorry, that was an incorrect statement. With all the traits in the fruit of the... It's one fruit. I was testing you. You caught me. Good job. Way to go. It's one fruit, as with all the traits. This is something that we cannot produce on our own. The Holy Spirit has to do this in our lives. However, that does not mean that you and I sit back passively and take this laissez-faire attitude and just say, Well, if I have joy, it's because the Lord will produce it. If I do not have joy, the Lord has not done His job. The Bible over and over again commands us to put ourselves in a position where the Lord is able to do this. In fact, you'll notice the title of the message at the top of the message map. The battle for joy. You and I are to fight for this, especially when circumstances are not the way that we would have them to be. We are to put ourselves in a position where God is able to do this in our lives. And I think the first way to do that is to acknowledge that we cannot produce this joy in our lives. Our attempts at joy are temporary at best and completely futile at worst. Think about the culture that we live in today. The culture that is set, we want no restraints, we want no rules. We're casting off anything that, that, that steals our freedom and tells us we can't do what we want to do. We want to pursue our own happiness. And yet, you look around at our society, anxiety is up. Depression is up. Suicide rates are up. We have failed miserably at self produced joy. The Christian acknowledges that true joy only comes from the Lord. Here's the second thing, the second stepping stone. Immerse myself in Scripture. I want you to notice this beautiful verse from the Old Testament. It's what Jeremiah wrote. Talking to the Lord, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. I love this image that Jeremiah painted. He did not just read God's word and move on. Notice what he said. He took it in. He savored each bite. And the result was it brought joy to his heart. I did not get permission for this illustration, so I am going to go ahead and apologize now. If you've been around Northway for a while, uh, you know David and Amanda Hightower. David, for years, cooked for our men's dinners. And the pinnacle of those dinners was his peach cobbler. Amazing peach cobbler. Every time for dessert, He would have this peach cobbler that, as they say, would make you slap your grandma. Now, I don't know why they say that. I have never eaten any food that's made me want to slap anyone. But that's what they say. I asked David for the recipe one time, and he said, Take a normal recipe, double the butter, double the sugar, and you're getting close if you will do all of that. We would have these men's dinners, we'd have the peach cobbler for dessert... And then later that night, all over middle Georgia, grandmas were slapped because it was just that amazing. I promise you, when I would eat that peach cobbler, I did not just race through it and move on. No, I I savored each bite. I relished this little taste of heaven as I ate it covered in vanilla ice cream. I enjoyed it. That's what the Bible invites us to do with God's Word. Not to read it and move on and be done, not to race through the passage so you can check something off your list, but to spend time letting those words feed our souls, to pause and reflect and enjoy, and then for it to move from our minds to our hearts. If you're in a home team right now, you have in the study guide that we gave to you devotions for each day. I hope that you are doing those devotions. I make a few comments in the devotions. There are some illustrations in there, but the meat of those devotions are the passages that I give you. Take some time, read those passages, savor them, underline key words in those passages, and let the Word of God feed you like nothing else can. And it will bring joy to your soul. Here's a third stepping stone. That is to participate in Christian community. Again, this is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, a letter that is full of joy. This letter that he wrote from prison in less than ideal circumstances, yet over and over again, he expresses joy. And here's an instance He tells the Philippians, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Now, here's the key. The Philippians sent to Paul a monetary gift to help Paul in his suffering, to alleviate his sufferings. But he was clear. That was not the source of his joy. His joy was not in the money. His joy was not because his financial situation had changed slightly with their gift. His joy was found in the fact that they loved him. That they had renewed their concern for him. That they expressed their love for Paul. And that love encouraged him in the midst of his suffering. Paul had joy because he knew that he would get to spend all of eternity with these brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom he had led to the Lord in the city of Philippi. And Paul says, that brings me joy. The Bible is very clear that we are not to pursue Christ on our own, like hermits, like lone ranger Christians. In fact, that concept is completely foreign to the New Testament. It's just Jesus and me. I don't need anyone else. I don't need a church. I don't need a small group. I can just go and be with Jesus, and I'm good, and I'm fine, and I don't need anyone else. Nowhere in the New Testament do you read of any individual who, like a hermit, just goes off into a cave and says, I'm good. You know, you don't have to come... Worship with me, pray with me, encourage me. I don't need any of that. It's completely far into the New Testament. In fact, when you and I are called into a relationship with Christ, we are also called into Christian community. And a major source of joy in our lives is being encouraged by our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in difficult circumstances to have someone come along and say, Remember, what you have in Christ that can never be taken away from you, which leads us to our fourth stepping stone. And if you are a home team leader in here, uh, please, please, please take time this week to look through this passage with your group. I want you guys to study this particular passage, which encourages us to look to our future reward, to look to the future reward that we have in Christ. This is the passage that Ryan read earlier from 1 Peter. Incredible passage about what we have to look forward to in Christ. Read this again with me. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you, what? Greatly... Rejoice in all of this. You take joy, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Okay, here's what Peter is saying. We will all suffer in life. Even if you're not a Christian, it still applies to you. You will suffer in life. We will all suffer. The question is, will we base our joy on our circumstances Or will we base it on something else? So let me give you four things, if you're a note-taker, four things that that Peter notes in this passage. And we will work backwards to understand exactly what he is saying. The first thing is, is that Peter notes that we will all suffer in numerous ways. Peter wrote this letter to Christians scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And he notes here that they have suffered... He does not know the details of all of their sufferings. He does not know every circumstance of all that they had gone through. But he says, you will suffer. You will suffer all kinds of trials. All all of you will suffer. And notice that Peter does not minimize that suffering. He does not write to Christians and say to them, Well, hey, just remember, when you suffer, the sun will come out tomorrow. He does not say, well, you just, what you need to do is you need to take lemons and make lemonade. He doesn't say, hey, it'll be okay. You need to get over it. He does not give any kind of trite, sort of trivial advice to those Christians. He acknowledges, this is hard. You will suffer. You will face very difficult circumstances. Peter in no way minimizes that. However, here's what he says. Number two, even though we suffer, we have reason to rejoice. Even in our most difficult circumstances, there is a reason that we have to rejoice. In other words, for the Christian, our external circumstances do not determine our level of joy. Why? Why is it that we can have unchangeable joy even in suffering? That leads us to the third point of Peter, which is we rejoice because we have a future hope. We rejoice because of what we know that we have waiting for us in the future. And notice what Peter says. You can underline these words in the passage. This is a hope that will never perish spoil, or fade. Regardless of what happens, it will not change. Regardless of who is elected this year, it will not change. Regardless of what happens with the stock market, it will not change. Regardless of anything that you can imagine, this inheritance will never perish, spoil, or fade. Meaning in the midst of Of our most difficult circumstances, there is still a reason to rejoice because of what waits for us in the future. Years ago, when I was living in Charlotte, I and a buddy decided to go to California and run in a marathon. It was in Huntington Beach, just outside of Los Angeles, and we actually had a buddy who uh, had moved to California to Los Angeles. Uh, just a few months before with his wife, and it just happened to be that that was the day of the Super Bowl that we were running this particular marathon, and it just happened to be that the Carolina Panthers were playing in the Super Bowl that year. And so we made plans to go out and run the marathon. We called this buddy and said, hey, we're going to be there. We're running this marathon. He said, great, here's what you guys need to do. You run the marathon. Once you're done, go to the hotel, get showered, come on over to our house we, my wife will cook for you. You guys can wash a soup bowl. In fact, you can just lay on the couch. You can lay on the floor. We'll serve you. We know you're going to be exhausted. We will make it great. You guys just come over and we will, we'll have a great time. And so the morning of the marathon came, started at like 8 o'clock that morning, started the race, and for the next nearly four hours of my life, I suffered all kinds of suffering. I went up those hills and the mountains of the cliffs right off right off of the beach. But I made it through that suffering in part. Why? Because I knew what I had to look forward to that afternoon. I knew that I would go and I would eat and I would watch a Super Bowl and I could just lay on the couch and I could be served. And I knew that even in the midst of this suffering, it would not last forever. And I had something better waiting for me. We all experience this in life. If you played high school football, you remember summer football camp? The three days in the heat? Why why did you do that? How were you able to make it through those? Because you knew it would not last forever. And you had something to look forward to playing on Friday night. You're studying for a test. How can you make it through the suffering of studying for the test? Because you know it's not forever. And you know there's a reward that's waiting. It's doing well on the test. We see this in all of life, and we see that in our spiritual lives. That God promises us that this suffering will not last forever. And there is a great reward that waits. Now, here's the last one. And this last point is key. This hope, this hope that we have that can never perish, spoil, or fade is a living hope. Notice that Peter did not write, you can have hope in the midst of difficult circumstances because this might happen. Peter did not say, well, you know, maybe, possibly, maybe, perhaps, I don't know, There's a better day that's coming. Peter did not write that. Peter wrote that you can have assurance because this is a living hope. And living is the key word there. Peter had seen the resurrected Jesus. Peter, along with hundreds of other disciples, had witnessed the Jesus who had died on the cross and was dead, dead, dead Buried in a tomb and then raised to life, so that Peter was able to write, It is a living hope. It is not the kind of hope that is a want or a wish, a desire, or a maybe. Rather, it is a hope that is a sure fire promise. And Peter, in this letter to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, who were suffering for their faith and they were suffering because life is sometimes just hard. He was able to say to them, this will not last forever. There is a hope that is a living hope that will never change. It is an inheritance that is waiting for you. If you've been around Northway for a while, you know that Katie and I lived in Rome, Italy before we came here to Northway in 2007. We lived in a neighborhood there called Trastevere. Uh, Tras, in Italian means across. Uh, Tevere is what the Italians call the Tiber River that runs through Rome. Uh, and so we lived in a neighborhood that was just across the Tiber River from the downtown portion of Rome. According to church history, Peter eventually made his way to Rome and in that neighborhood, Trastevere, is where he planted the church that became a very successful church. Men and women, boys and girls, all around the area came to know Christ, which was great for Peter and for the church and for those individuals, but the Roman officials weren't very happy. They did not like seeing all of these people suddenly give their allegiance to a dead Jewish rabbi who had supposedly come back from the grave, who had been raised to life, rather than to the Roman emperor. And so these Roman officials went after the leader of the church, Peter. And they took Peter and they put him in prison next to a racetrack that was used by the Roman emperor. The racetrack was located on a place called the Vaticus Mons, or the Vatican Hill. It's today where the Vatican and St. Peter sits. They arrested Peter, they imprisoned Peter, and then they came to Peter and they said, you quit preaching Christ, or we will crucify you. Peter's response? When you crucify me, do it upside down because i do not deserve to die in the same manner as my lord what gave peter in the midst of those incredibly difficult circumstances the strength to respond in that way it's because of the reward that he knew awaiting him a reward that can never perish, spoil or fade that is our source of joy.